Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Mark and Sarah talk about songs. 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 Hey everyone, welcome back to Mark and Sarah talk about songs. It's episode 54. I'm Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with my co-host, Mark Blankenship. How are you, Mark? Hey, Sarah, <laughs> I love constricted singing. Um, in case it wasn't clear, um, from Mark's super grungy intro voice, we are talking about Stone Temple Pilots' Plush, which of course was their, I believe, biggest hit. It was suggested to us by not one, but two listeners named Michelle. So thank you, Michelles. Um, oh my God, listening to this song really brought me back to college and to our weekly ritual of watching 120 Minutes with Matt Pin- Pinfield. Yeah. To find out to who would tell us what was cool. And then we would go to the Princeton Record Exchange and buy that stuff the next day. Um, and... I could immediately picture the late Scott Weiland, R.I.P., just like lurching pretentiously around the set of the video. I could picture myself walking through campus and hearing this song and um, uh, Evenflow, I think, blasting out of the windows. And it really, I wouldn't say I like the song, but it is super evocative. Uh, Shall we listen to a clip or do you have something that you'd like to add before we... Oh, no, I, I think that we should listen to the clip first. All right, let's do that now. Sarah, listening to this song, and I will tell you that because of this request, I not only listened to this song, but listened to their entire Greatest Hits album. Wow. I know, right? I was reminded of the very frequent stratification that we find in popular music genres, where you've got on the top strata, the bands or groups or artists that are the flag bearers. They're awesome. They're respected, even if you don't like them, whatever. On the bottom strata, you've got the complete copycat mimics who nobody likes but somehow get popular anyway and then in the middle you've got the bands that are kind of seem like they're just cashing in on the trend but are also still pretty good so they're kind of the like i can play this at a party and nobody's going to get mad but also nobody's going to get a tattoo of this band on their forehead and i feel like for instance (laughs) if if madonna is at the top of the pop divas of the 80s and like Samantha Fox is at the bottom, then somewhere in the middle of that, you've got your your Taylor Danes, right? Okay. So I would say that for me, 
Stone Temple Pilots is the Taylor Dane of grunge rock. Okay, like, so who I, who is the Madonna? Oh, Pearl Jam and Nirvana, okay. indubitably. And then Candlebox, I assume. <laughs> I poor, don't. Poor, poor Candlebox. Listeners, in case we haven't mentioned this explicitly before, or it's been a while, I don't think either of us has ever even heard a Candlebox track, but we both read the same Mark Yarm. Is that his name? Yes. The Mark Yarm same is correct. Fantastic oral history of grunge and this is what we base our candlebox mockery on i've never heard a note of candlebox they could be you know brilliant but um no i actually i remember them from when they were popular they're fine they're not great <laughs> but they're still samantha foxy they're some they're, they're they're the samantha fox they or there's also a band called seven mary three oh yes that just oh they're totally terrible. the samantha fox actually although I can never be too mad at them because they base the name of their band on the Chips call sign from the show. Oh, they were seven or three. Anyway, <clears throat> um, not to seem like we're avoiding talking about this actual song because we're not. But I, I think I've pretty much said my piece, except that like, it is very evocative. It does bring you back to that time with that like heavy grinding guitar and the polypy singing that it's both nostalgically soothing and qualitatively a little annoying and Mm -hmm. i i can't even tell if it's good the song because it's just so it's just so much of its era that it's very Mm -hmm. difficult for me to separate whether it's like objectively a quality song from like all the other sort of cultural detritus that surrounds it in particular just scott wyland's struggles with living which eventually overwhelmed him so um i don't know if you feel that way is i mean were you a stone temple pilots fan is this your favorite of their songs how do you feel you know i actually i actually was a stone temple pilots fan and this is not my favorite of their songs because I think that their second album, Purple, was much more interesting, even at the time I thought so. But all these years later, I do think that Plush has a great melody. Melody? Is that the word I'm looking for? It seems so wrong to use a word like melody with a song like this. But, you know, the, where the dogs can find her guitar. Like, yeah, he pleasant... actually does have a very... Like, he has a pleasant voice that I feel like he doesn't yes. necessarily avail himself of because that wasn't what the sound called for, but you're right. And I feel like once Stone, once you strip away the crunchy, sludgy sound around this song, you actually hear that it's a pretty good song. And the reason I say that is because on their Greatest Hits album, there is an acoustic version of Plush that was performed on Headbangers Ball. And it is so much easier to appreciate that Plush is actually a good song when you just hear it in that version. And what I was reminded of as I was listening through their greatest hits was that the band got more and more interesting with each of their albums because by the time they got to the album with the song Sour Girl on it, which was the one with the Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah. Well, and by that point, they were doing all this trippy glam rock stuff. And then they've got a song like Vaseline, which is really interesting. And uh, I I just think that this is a good song that at the time, that is marred 
by the moment that it became popular because I it sounded forever trapped in its era and Stone Temple Pilots at this point in their career did not have the artistic vision to transcend the sound of the time the way that I think Evenflow actually gets beyond sounding like a grunge song somehow it's just a great song like there's something about Stone Temple Pilots that they could never quite they were never quite innovative enough to transcend their genre but then they experimented with enough genres well enough that I always kind of like them again that's why they're in the middle of the pack for me like they're pleasant but I would never call them geniuses but they make lots of songs that I was not sorry to hear again yeah I think that's I think that's a very apt um uh like metaphorical construct for this uh because I think they may have had the misfortune and this is sort of you know 25 years down the line and with the accompanying fog of you know beery fog of memory that attends all of my college reminiscences but it did seem at the time like it's not like they were copying Pearl Jam, but they were similar enough that that mm-hmm. was always going to be a little bit of a problem for them. And that, like you say, like they were fine. You could put it on at a party. Nobody's going to be like, boo, <laughs> but nobody's going to seek it out. Like if the Pearl Jam CD is on top of the Stone Temple Pilot CD next to the changer, you're not going to dig down through the pile. You're just going to put the Pearl Jam on. And it, that's exactly right. It seemed at the time, although I would say I found Pearl Jam and just Eddie Vedder himself and that whole Ticketmaster foo-for-raw, even though he was right, he's like Bono in that it's like, I, you're correct, and yet you're getting on my nerves. Exactly. But because of the vocal similarity and just that a lot of this sounded the same and the ways that like a smashing pumpkins would set themselves apart was often to make the music sound even uglier Mm. that I personally like stone temple pilots. I was like, I have room for to think about one of these and it's not you. Right. And then I kind of stopped following what they were doing after that. And then I had heard the song Sour Girl and I liked it. And I had to be told after like a year that that was Stone Temple Pilots. I don't know who I thought it was, but I didn't think it was them because melodically, like they had evolved, Mm -hmm. like you said, but I think they always had kind of this problem with like, they were always the subhead and Pearl Jam was the headline. And because of certain similarities, they were always going to be struggling to get out of that trap. And it's too bad because I think they actually did it. But by the time they did, a lot of people had stopped paying attention. And so, well, and honestly, I didn't buy the album that Sour Girl is on because I had got, I had moved on to other things, but I can remember thinking, Oh, that song is really good. And I'm surprised that that's Stone Temple Pilots. So I completely agree with you. It's kind of a shame that they started making their most interesting music after everyone had stopped paying attention, which weirdly enough is also what happened to Ashanti, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> well, I think that I think that happens to happens to a lot of bands that are part of like a musical movement that's associated with a certain right. time that it's like once everyone turns away, then you're free to uh to do what you like. Um I believe that Wyland's second wife of three, 
wrote a memoir about their marriage and her time with him. Have you read that? I have not, although that sounds correct. When you say it, I feel like I knew that. Um, well, listeners, if you have read it, please let us know on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash podcast. And we'd also always love to talk to you about that oral history of grunge. Um, it's a must read. It, it really is great. It really is. It's so it's so well done. And um, we'd feel ways about Courtney Love's portrayal in this. Um, and I... I think we did a joint review of it on tomatonation.com and I will link to that in our show notes this week as well. But um, I'm always into uh, nosy, gossipy rock and roll memoirs by the wife. So if anyone's read it and can tell me if I should bother. We're going to let our voices rest from all that constricted grunge singing and take a moment for a pop chart astrology reading, which is when I predict someone's destiny based on the song that was number one on the day that they were born. Yes, indeed. And today's birthday reading goes out to Frodo, which I am fairly certain is a nickname and that I'm not actually giving a reading for a fictional character. Uh, but this is goes out to you, Frodo, with a special happy birthday from Nikki. And Frodo was born on April 29th, 1987. And sir, that means that your number one song was the inimitable I Knew You Were Waiting For Me by Aretha Franklin and George Michael. So let's take a moment to listen to some of the hollering ad-libs that happen at the end of that song. Yes, everything about it is exactly what I need today, and I hope it's what you need today as well. And let me give you some background on this uh, this song's success. This was Aretha Franklin's second number one hit in America, if you can believe it, only her second after Respect. And it was George Michael's fourth, if you count all of his songs with Wham!, which of course we do. And at the end of the day, this song is really a one-off for both of them. George Michael really wanted to collaborate with Aretha, so they got together and did this hit. But some things that are interesting about it, along with the unusual and one-off pairing of Aretha and George, are all of the other types of people who were involved in making this happen. American Idol's own Randy Jackson plays bass guitar on this song. And it is written by two men named Simon Climey and Dennis Morgan. Now, Simon Climey was actually quite successful as a British singer-songwriter. He was also a member of a group called Climey Fisher. He wrote a hit for Pat Benatar called Invincible. Meanwhile, on the complete flip side, Dennis Morgan was a very popular country songwriter. He wrote a huge hit for 
Faith Hill called It Matters to Me. He wrote Smoky Mountain Rain for Ronnie Millsap. So it was really unusual for all of these different people to come together. You've got Randy Jackson representing rock at the time, Simon Climey representing English pop, Dennis Morgan representing country, Aretha Franklin and the producer on the song Narada Michael Walden representing R&B, and George Michael representing R&B and pop and British pop all at the same time. So what I would say for you, Frodo, is that to me this says that your success in some way rests on your ability to assemble around you a diverse team of people who may not necessarily make sense together to the outside eye, but who you understand can work perfectly together. Uh, That might refer in some way to your personal life or your professional life. Of course, that's up for you to determine. But I would say keep an eye out for the seemingly unlikely pieces that can come together into an incredible whole. And your ability to assemble those pieces and then work well within the new grouping will be a roadmap for your success. So Frodo, I hope you find that birthday reading helpful, and remember, if you would like to have a reading done for yourself or someone that you care about or love, you can feel free to get in touch with us at talkaboutsongs at gmail.com, and we will give you the rates and the dates and everything else you need to know to make that happen. And now, back to the grungy, grungy, grunginess of Stone Temple Pilots. And Sarah, one last thing that I would like to bring up, and I don't know if if this is something that I'm making too much of or what, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts. I was struck by that another way that Eddie Vedder slash Pearl Jam are similar to Scott Weiland slash Stone Temple Pilots is that they both have a lot of songs that sympathize with or try to personify the things that happen to women in our culture. Uh, Pearl Jam has a lot of songs that are told from a woman's point of view. And then just again on this Greatest Hits album that has completely defined my understanding of Stone Temple Pilots recently, there are like five songs that are about women suffering at the hands of men or a male-dominated society. Plush is about a woman who is killed. Uh, There's a song called Lady Picture Show, which is about a woman who is abused. There's a song called Sex Type Thing, which was on their first album also which is about rape culture. I just think it's really interesting, and I think it's something that was really lost in the initial crush of these bands' popularity, that they do seem to be trying to work through and care about Western misogyny. Does that seem too crazy to be saying? Um, No, it doesn't seem crazy at all. I would have come at it from a different angle, which, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a true crime podcaster, everything looks like a true crime (laughs) topic. And I think that you also had, um, who was it that had Runaway Train? Soul Asylum? A Soul Asylum. Right. Um, Not to confuse them with Blind Melon. Holy shit, there were a fucking million of these these bands. Yeah, and they're they're kind of all, they're kind of all the same. And it's literally gone pretty horribly wrong for almost all of them. Like, not one of them has the initial lineup living i don't think right um shannon hoon from blind melon yep, died yep someone in soul scott, scott wyland obviously um kurt cobain obviously uh i actually pearl jam i think is entire yeah like pearl jam really they're the ones and they actually as we're recording this just a few days ago got inducted by david letterman into the rock and roll hall of fame boy we're timely 
Um, yeah. Anyway. And like, but it's like they're the one. They're the ones that managed to sort of make it in the way that Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters just he Dave Grohl rolls, rose from the wreckage of Nirvana and like managed to just keep it together. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, I think there was this sense at the time and also this like maybe um contemporary surge forward in like true crime programming and awareness and like Mm. that you had um in the late 80s you had cops and america's most wanted and then you started having in the like turn of the 90s and I happen to be, as we record this, watching uh, the first of the Paradise Lost documentaries for my other oh, podcast, sure. The Blutter Presents. And that's the early 90s in that like activist true crime documentary genre that began with Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line a few years previously was gaining steam, I would say, at that time. Uh, I could be talking out of my ass. I have no, um, I have no, um, like actual hard evidence for this timeline but i i think maybe that might have to do with how much of it you're you're seeing and also that for these bands that were coming out of the pacific northwest that that is like a hotbed of fucked up serial killers and notorious criminals that it's like there and florida is where all the shit goes down and in ted bundy's case both so yeah, I wonder, I mean, I wonder how much of it is geographical, and I wonder how much of it is just, like, rock bands like to do that, like, social consciousness, true story narrative type of thing. Like, it it doesn't always work out very well, see Elvis Presley's In the Ghetto, but I would say that the grunge bands had a higher than normal like success rate with incorporating these stories into songs and not seeming like they were trying too hard or like showing off it did feel very sincere and it is sort of unusual i don't i can't point to another time or genre where that was happening can you right no i i can't really but i i feel like there is it's it's like a I feel like there's this almost maybe a perfect storm afoot of these young men who were raised in cultures like you would find in the Pacific Northwest that allowed them to be more sensitive somehow. Like there was a more of a commitment to social consciousness or like that maybe it's just the types of men who came into these bands were already very sensitive. They're just there's there's a certain amount of empathy in the music that these bands were creating, even though it was at the time misconstrued as being nothing but rage and anger, it's actually a lot of inward-looking pain and empathy. Yeah, ooh, ooh, Alice and... in Chains. Alice in Chains is another great example. Oh, yeah. of... <laughs> But it's like you get that plus all of the shit that's happening with crime and everything, and so you get these wounded, sensitive, thoughtful dudes. But, and... And, and, and women, sometimes. And... Um, wasn't there, going back to the, um, going back to the Mark Yarn book, wasn't there a whole section about a, a woman who had been murdered? Yes. Mia something. It was in a band that neither you or I had ever heard of, but she was a big part of the local scene in Seattle and she was murdered. 
and it really devastated a lot of people in that community. Yeah, and they continue to do, I think, fundraisers and an annual concert in her name to this day, and I was very struck by that, and I'm like, I feel a little stupid that I didn't make that connection before while we were talking about this, that that must have had its ripple effect in this community of musicians and in this genre of musicians, that that particular murder might have been like extrapolated to other songwriting. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to No, I think that's important. draw that but, connection you know, also, before I forgot. It's also interesting that in all of this, I keep forgetting that Stone Temple Pilots is actually from San Diego. Oh, okay. Well, then but like, what the fuck do yet, I know? And yet at the same time, but I don't think that we're wrong. Like the fact that they were not actually part of that community the way that Alice in Chains um, and Candlebox and Nirvana and Pearl Jam were, I don't think that that necessarily makes us wrong because this is why a band like Stone Temple Pilots lives in the middle strata because they were absolutely affected by not only the sound but the mental preoccupations of this type of music and they weren't from the scene but they wanted to still be of the scene and they were to an extent and I just think that that really all ties into the sense of the the emotion in their music but also the reason why they always felt like hangers on a little bit and probably also why they evolved more successfully into such a wildly different direction than even Pearl Jam which is kind of making the same music now that it was 25 years ago. Yeah. Huh, I mean And I think there's also you, an argument you might think to be that made. we're all full of crap but yeah, I think it's interesting to talk that about. That Eddie Vedder <laughs> and Kurt Cobain did they wanted to be artists but weren't all that interested in being rock stars. And I think Scott right. Weiland absolutely wanted to be a rock star, looked like a rock star, dressed like a rock star, died like a rock yes. star. So there's, I mean, yeah. you know, we could have all the theories we want. It's our podcast, but but they'll probably be and wrong. Here's the thing. The thing is, all of these theories might be completely baseless. They might be all completely incorrect. But the music is still interesting enough that it warrants this type of theorizing. And that, I guess, is the ultimate compliment to pay even to a stereotypical grunge song like plush like there's still enough happening inside of it that all these years later it's still fun to talk about so that you might even say that it's not threadbare oh what (laughs) and we're out Sarah Talk About Songs is hosted by Mark Blankenship and Sarah D. Bunting and edited by Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. Today's theme song was written by David Gregory Byrne, and you can dig more of his chili at davidgregoryburn.com. If you'd like to place an ad, request a song, or arrange for Mark, me, to read your pop chart horoscope, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at talksongs at gmail.com, tweet us at talksongs, or hit up our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mastus.podcast. And if you like the podcast, let us know. Leave us a positive review on iTunes or the podcast download interface of your choosing. And please download the music you hear legally. Yes. So until next time, this is Mark. And this is Sarah. And this. And this 
is Mark and is Sarah. Is Mark and Sarah. Talk about songs. Talk about songs. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.